Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kachansky and in today's show we want to talk about digital payments innovation. We're going to be discussing how payments are developing across the world, the global shift away from cash and what this means for financial inclusion, especially in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. To help dive into this topic, I'm joined by some excellent guests, uh, making their Fintech Insider debuts, in fact. Uh, I'm joined by Jennifer Duncan, Vice President of Global Government Innovation at MasterCard. How are you today, Jennifer? I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to the discussion, Sita. Brilliant. Um, So I don't think we need an introduction to MasterCard, but perhaps you could give us a quick introduction to what you do there. Sure. So... I work in the government engagement team. So our team is established basically to work with governments across the globe to understand the policy challenges they might be facing and to understand how we can collaborate to develop payment solutions that help them digitize further. So it could be contactless transport, it could be digitizing welfare, it could be analyzing data to target resources better. There's a whole multitude of tools at our disposal and we're developing new skills all the time. But for the past four months, my role has been focused on uh, COVID-19 and coordinating uh, our response and how we work with governments across the, the piece. So it's been a very interesting and exhausting time. <laughs> yes, I can imagine you've had quite a lot on your plate. Um, next up, we have Shirag Patel, who is Global Head of Payments at Santander. How are you today, Shirag? Yeah, good. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for coming along. Um, again, I think we're probably all okay with what Santander does, but perhaps you could give us a quick overview of what you do there. Sure. So I lead payments uh, for the group. So uh, the group is actually made up of uh, 10 banks across many countries throughout Europe and Latin America. Um, so we have something like 80 million cards, uh, $230 billion in, in transaction volume across all of our payments. I also lead a number of startups as well. We just launched uh, PagoFX. On my birthday, on the 16th of April this year, best birthday present ever. Um, so that's uh, international uh, transfers all, all around the world through a super easy app. Um, as another startup that we are already quite underway with, which allows you, it's a payments rail, which allows you to send money uh, through a single integration anywhere in the world instantly. Um, so a lot of great new innovation, plus all of the old sort of stuff like your cards and making payments in traditional. Sounds like you've also got a lot on your plate. And I'm just going to pause there. Are you in an actual office? Uh, I am. Yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's the best Wi-Fi. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody in an actual office for months. Sorry to our listeners. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the only one. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like the new way to, to actually get work done is to actually be in the office and, and loads of distractions at home. <laughs> no, no, that's totally fair. Um, and last, by no means least, we have Mario Shiliashki, CEO of Payments at PayU. Uh, thank you for joining us, Mario. Great to be here, Sarah. Um, and I think perhaps I would like to know a little bit more about what PayU does, because perhaps not so quite uh, as widely known as the other two companies. And then maybe a little bit about what you do there as well. Absolutely. Um, so PayU, PayU is um, an online payments player. We exclusively focus on online. We're global. And we focus um, on what we call high growth markets. Others call them uh, emerging markets, but many of them have already emerged. We are um, a leader in online payments in a number of high growth markets uh, across Latin America, Africa, Central Eastern Europe, Turkey, Russia, India, and Southeast Asia. Uh, We cover about 20 markets. And the 
unique thing about PayU is that we have local platforms with local teams um, in each of these 20 markets. We process um, both global and local domestic and cross-border e-commerce uh, payments. Uh, and like I said, we are global in not just setup, but also uh, span of the globe. Uh, we process about 40 billion in uh, TPV or total payments volume and growing at about 35, 30, 35% year on year. Um, and um, the other distinguishing thing for us is we're part of a, of a, of a consumer uh, internet company, a conglomerate called Process and Naspers. Um, Process is the largest European consumer e-commerce company. Um, and uh, because of that, we, uh, we actually have an ability to not just grow organically within the payments ecosystem. We also are big investors in fintech and payments. For the past uh, three and a half, four years, we've invested close to a billion dollars in uh, either acquiring businesses in the markets where we're in um, or extending our both geographic reach and uh, product reach. Um, and uh, with that, we connect consumers and merchants. We connect merchants to over 2.3 billion consumers around the world. Um, and uh, all of that, like I said, is done with local platforms in each of these high growth markets connected via a single API, uh, a single API orchestration layer that we call the PayU hub. What I do at PayU is I lead the global payments organization, which again spans across uh, 20 markets with about a thousand people. Um, and then another 1500 to uh, 2000 people in India. Brilliant, again, sounds like you have quite a lot to keep you occupied. Um, all right, well, let's kick off the show. Um, we're going to start off with some scene setting um, and have a quick look at where we are with digital payments at the moment. Um, so, quick question for you all, which is kind of linked to my comment earlier about ShareAg's location. When was the last time anybody used cash? And if you can remember, what was it for? Just a, a high level of what it was for. I don't need to know if there's, you know, there's any details you don't want made public. Well, I, I can start. Maybe it was, it was quite hilarious, really, because uh, all the hairdressers started. I, I had COVID hair like everybody else, and I needed to get a haircut. And literally, you, you, you couldn't get an appointment, but I, I couldn't give a tip. So I, I always sort of feel under pressure with these things. But then I went up to the ATM and I was like, should I touch something here or not? I had to like literally get the Purell out ready to go. I, I, I put in my code, got the money out. And then when I actually went to gave my tip, I don't think they even wanted it in, in cash either. So it's kind of like the world has changed so quickly and it's so interesting to see how, it, how it's all going to turn out. Yeah, no, I think you're not the only one who's had that experience. I think I've definitely heard barbers being cash only um, from a few people. Uh, anybody else? Any? Can you recall when you last used cash? So I, I, I can go next. Um, on two occasions, one failed attempt, like Shirag, another one uh, accepted with a lot of uh, glee. Uh, the, the latter was my son's uh, tooth fairy, um, who, who only accepts cash, who only uh, apparently gives cash. So <laughs> we found ourselves with my wife that uh, there was no cash around the house, so we had to. I had to go to the ATM. Uh, the second, <laughs> the second was uh, recently a, a, a flower uh, or a bouquet of flowers for my mom, and the flowers that uh, I usually go to near her place. Only used to accept cash, so I prepared myself with cash, uh, and of course, lo and behold, uh, 
he now started accepting cards. So he would say, oh, no, no, no cash, card, card please, uh, which to, to me, that was delightful. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I've, I've, we've seen quite um, a bit of that. I think we'll get onto that slightly later. But we have seen quite a lot of people, you know, finally making the jump that that who previously wouldn't have taken guard. Um, Jennifer, how about you? Can you recall? Actually, the experience is similar to Mario. So just before COVID, I was supposed to be going to the beautician, much needed, but it was uh, cancelled. And normally, the local business they just take cash. And I went on Friday, and I can tell you, she took. Um, and digital payments with iZettle. So I was very chuffed to see that she had made that switch. And I think something that we're going to see lots of small businesses look to do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think I, I think mine's the only thing I can think of that I've used cash for recently and had to, because we don't use any cash in this household, as you can imagine, if you work in the industry, it's just, it's just not a thing, um, was that we went to get fish and chips. I had this desperate urge for fish and chips under COVID. Um, and we, we turned up and I was like waiting outside. This is a very English thing to do, like waiting outside the chip shop in my car because you, you can't wait around anymore. You have to like pick it up and go. And my partner went to get the fish and chips and he rang me and said, I can't get it. And I was like, why? And they said, we, they don't take card payments. It's only cash. Do you know where the ATM is? And I was like, we've lived here two years. I have no idea where there's an ATM. So then he's running around the town center trying to get enough cash to pay for fish and chips before the fish and chips are cooked so they don't get cold. Um, the, the, you know, the upshot was a happy ending. We did get our fish and chips. But now we have sort of 12 pounds sitting on the kitchen table that nobody's quite sure what to do with. Um, so, you know, we've talked there about how how things have been sped up by, uh, by, by the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but has there been was was this kind of is this accelerating a trend that had already started? So have we been seeing um, a sort of shift away from cash in the last few years, pre-pandemic, if you like? Absolutely. Maybe maybe I can start. Uh, what we've seen certainly in our markets uh, is an acceleration to the extent that what we thought would take decades uh, is literally happening in a couple in a few weeks, right? Both on um, acceptance of digital payments, as we just discussed. Uh, what we see in our business, which is uh, nearly 100% online, is additionally adoption of e-commerce, both for existing merchants who are, let's say, multi-channel, the likes of Adidas and Nike and Zara, um, that have now gone almost exclusively in the lockdown period to online. We've seen that um, in, in, in the numbers. Uh, but also a huge influx of um, SMB or SMEs in across all our markets um, truly unprecedented numbers uh, and influx of SMEs wanting to come online, whereas before they may have had um, just a just a static page with with products. Uh, now they're looking for fully e-commerce capabilities, including payments, and that's of course driving further adoption of digital payments. Yeah, I totally agree with um, Mario. I mean, you know, we've seen some numbers as high as 150 percent increase in contactless payments in the U.S. 80% increase in e-commerce across Europe. So, you know, we can sort of see that massive trend. But, you know, still, when I go and chat to my mum, um, she still pulls out a purse and tries to pay in cash and coins. So, you know, it's, it's so important of this huge trend because I, I truly believe in the digitization of currency and, and, and what that can give us. But, you know, there is still a lot of people that this is going to be very uncomfortable for. And, you know, when, when we're thinking about all of our customers, especially in a retail perspective, we can't just focus on those that are tech adopters or digital enabled. You know, we have to think about everyone. Jennifer, have you seen it? Sorry, please. I definitely think 
as Chair says, we're on the journey already, but actually we've seen an acceleration. And I think definitely during the period that we've been faced with the, the COVID pandemic globally, you've seen governments take action in a matter of weeks, whereas normally we're used to seeing um, projects like this take years in the making. And actually there's an urgent need. And I think picking up on the specific point about maybe the older generation who, for example, were being encouraged to shield who a lot of those individuals are reliant on going into either you know a post office, a branch. They like to interact in, in the physical environment. And what we have seen is, I think, very early on, a number of governments, Israel and, and Chile being two of them, acting really quickly to target pensioners and say, actually, we have these pensioners programs or welfare payments that are going out. We need to get capability training out to those individuals to ensure actually they can use the tool. Um, so don't give them technology that they don't understand. And then secondly, getting the digital payment vehicle out to them ASAP. So that means actually they can stay at home, they can still do their shopping, they can still you know pay their care or whatever they need to do. But all of this is going to create a you know definitely kind of put the foot down in terms of the acceleration we were already seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because previous to, to the current situation, we had seen some governments take steps towards moving away from cash. We'd seen a lot of governments and, and even the EU making sure that people had access to electronic payments, but perhaps that was more about facilitating. It wasn't an actual push. Um, it sounds like we're actually seeing more governments take an actual push approach here rather than just sort of enabling. Are there any other examples that we've seen of that, either previous to COVID or that you've seen come in as a result of COVID? Um, sure. So uh, the biggest one that comes to mind in a market where PayU is quite significant uh, is India. And uh, all of us have followed the digitization of the economy, but also the move towards cashless. Um, and I think the, the government there has done an amazing job of not only pushing and, and regulating uh, cash out, but also setting up the infrastructure so that actually people can be banked, can use their identity in a digital format, um, and can pay uh, both online and offline without cash. Uh, clearly, that's been a tremendous shift in both commerce and consumer behaviors. Uh, but, but that, to me, has been the most significant example and the most prominent example of a government truly taking digitization as an agenda and, and really making significant strides in, in a very short period of time. Yeah, I think um, it, it, I think sometimes governments can kind of get put off by the price tag that comes along with it. So before I joined Santander, I actually launched one of the very first NFC mobile wallets in the US. It was a joint venture between AT&T, Verizon and T-Mobile. And it was the worst possible name that you could get at that time. It was called ISIS. And we had to later uh, change it uh, to soft card. Um, but you literally like what we realized was it was great to have the NSC capability. We actually partnered with MasterCard um, and there was nowhere to use it. So there wasn't the contactless terminal infrastructure that, you know, Europe, you know, takes almost for granted. And while we wanted to push our own wallet, we actually had to go and actually upgrade all the terminals well and take that cost on. So I think in India, I think that's a great example of where a government is working in partnership with technology and uh, technology providers. But the U.S. could also be an example where, 
you know, a greater help from the government could have actually accelerated uh, contactless payments. I think because of COVID, I think that's now changed. But still, you know, um, contactless adoption in the U.S. is way behind uh, Europe. Jennifer, did you want to add anything to that? Is there, are there any other examples you'd like to call out of, of governmental intervention? I was trying to um, temper my enthusiasm for getting on my hobby horse about the US's slow adoption of digital <laughs> payments. Um, I think it's chip and pin, never mind contactless. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things you can do. I mean, in the, the, the very short term at city level, we've seen some activities. So I think Ellie actually launched a campaign where they use digital payments platforms to get donations in, first of all, and then they've used payments infrastructure to then push the payments back out to vulnerable families across the the city. And actually, we're seeing now there's around 10 different cities now looking to emulate that across the states. So we are seeing um, some activity there. But I think aside from COVID, there was other bigger strategic plays that some governments are starting to look at. If I think about um, the Czech Republic and France in particular, they have both announced um, what we call digital country partnerships. So basically looking at the country in a strategic way and thinking, what are all the different elements that we could focus on as a government to try and drive innovation and help um, technology growth? Um, There's obviously some great statistics and proven uh, statistics, I should say, about the benefits of digitization and what that does for, for GDP. So there is a, a justification for these economies looking at that. If you take an example um, like Ireland, the Irish government had a scheme pre-COVID, which these doubled, I think, subsequently as a consequence in terms of their response to COVID, which focused on helping small businesses to digitize. So they have a scheme which um, they're basically helping with the capital outlay of small businesses to digitize. So at the moment, I think you can get up to €5,000 to help uh, digitize. And they've got some great statistics on the early years of this program and what it did in terms of enabling employment, what it did for growth there, what it did in forward job orders, what it did for export. So it's really a, a great model of actually how governments can help small businesses actually make that initial leap. And actually the government reaps the rewards in the end of the day from those businesses succeeding and supporting more um, individuals in their economy. So, so it's interesting there we sort of touched on some, some different types of technology that are being used here um, to sort of facilitate digital uh, payments. But outside of the obvious, so we kind of tend to think about in this in the UK um, you tend and in Europe we tend to think about NFC and contactless and then you know um, entering a card online to make an online payment. I think I think for a lot of people in the, across Europe and the UK, um, you know those are the two things that they would think instantly about a digital payment. But obviously in other parts of the world there are different things being done and obviously there are different sort of infrastructure improvements required. Um, so do any of you have any sort of interesting examples about perhaps more? Technology. I was going to say more unusual technology. Technology that's more unusual to perhaps a, a Western European or or even a US um, audience. Although I accept that contactless is uh, unusual to a US audience, um, but perhaps let's go for something a little bit more, uh, a little bit more off the beaten track. I wouldn't say this is off the beaten track, but certainly um, the high engagement of P two P payments um, and. Just, you know, looking into the U.S. about the, the play between Venmo, which is very social, 
um, and you sort of share with your friends to Zelle, which is for all your bills and utilities. And the fact that these two P2P services can sort of live together and still you know, share customers and have amazing growth across them. But what we've seen in uh, Latin America is sort of how P2P is being pushed by the governments um, and the creation of these directories that allow you to just send money through uh, an email address or telephone number, not having to put all your bank account information in, but moving that into the P2M space with QR code, which we've already seen, you know, quite extensively in Asia, but, you know, coming very much so into Latin America now as well. Because that infrastructure of that POS, that cost, um, it's just, it, you know, nobody wants to take that on, that, uh, that burden anymore. So quicker use to ways to pay, high engagement with the customer, make it super easy. These are all the things that resonate when uh, cost is a big element to replicate yeah, the traditional yeah. rails. So basically reduce the hardware. Um, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's not needed anymore. You know, you don't need that POS sitting there and then. You know, quite frankly, in a lot of these developing countries, you've got multiple POSs and devices sitting on your uh, front, uh, taking up space. Yes, I remember a trip to Turkey and being absolutely baffled by how <laughs> each merchant yeah, yeah. <laughs> had. had um, so, yeah, but what about any, anywhere else? Because um, QR code is, is a really interesting one because in the UK we have this track and trace system now where every pub or every shop or whatever has a, a, a track and trace system. You have to scan a QR code and I don't have a QR code reader on my phone, so that's baffling to me. But I do know in other parts of the world that, you know, Latin America and perhaps Asia, um, that, you know, QR codes are, are much more widely accepted. What about kind of outside of the US and and, and Europe, you, know, you mentioned Latin America there. Is there. Are there any other Asian examples, perhaps? Um, Mario, you, you, you talked about India earlier. Yeah, so I think QR code, like Shirak said, is certainly not off the beaten path when we get out of the uh, um, carded markets, right, uh, with contactless. And I think um, in Asia, pretty much across, QR code is the predominant way to pay. Uh, one, I think, because, and by the way, Africa as well, Latam, uh, Shirak already talked about how that's changing as well, and QR code is really getting in there. I think that there are two 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 things there. Um, one is the infrastructure that didn't exist, and it's much easier to put a QR code in an app than it is to uh, furnish a whole bunch of either contactless or or wired wired terminals. Um, but uh, so, example in India again, again with the demonetization, you could see uh, marketplaces, physical marketplaces. Immediately the next day or the next week, having QR codes all over the place, right? Um, that's already commonplace in pretty much all of Asia. And I think, uh, it's, it's down on the consumer side, it's two things. One is whether enough consumers have bank, are banked and have cards, which would be then the preferred alternative. Um, or is it a wallet like you were talking about Venmo? Or is it a wallet that is much more likely to be a QR code enabled offline payment system? Um, and, and, and is there a, an already established um, kind of app for payments and other things, whether it's uh, social, um, social interaction, whether it's uh, shopping, right? So Kenya comes to mind, uh, an old example, right? With M-Pesa where well, everything is connected via, via M-Pesa. And it's um, really taken out. It's, it's not contactless, but it's uh, it's QR code or it's um, or it's SMS uh, in the old days. Uh, and one example that comes to mind here uh, in the UK, where I think things are starting to change due to COVID. You mentioned one where it's uh, a track and trace, but uh, pubs nowadays 
actually because they have to bring you food and you can't use cash, have started developing either apps or websites where the menu is downloaded, you sit in the table, you order your food, you pay online in a way, right? Uh, there's no exchange of card or anything. Uh, you don't pay contactless, you pay online and then the, 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 the food and drink is brought to you. Um, so I think that's another trend where um, e-commerce, if you will, or online payments is even further boosted by these kinds of examples. Yeah, I love that example because honestly, I've been so frustrated recently because every time I go into a restaurant to get lunch now, I have to download another app. So like my phone's filling up now, but you know, there's an opportunity there, I think. There's a couple of things. I ha- yeah, I think I have to say, I am, just so we're clear, very fond of the idea of walking into a public house, sitting down and doing everything from an app and never having to queue at a bar or fight for service ever again. I think pubs should stay that way. I you know, I'd have to go near anybody else. I have to talk to anybody else. I do see your point about the apps. And I think there's a huge space, but maybe somebody like, I don't know, like Deliveroo or Uber Eats to like have a standard app and bring everything together. Um, but we're just going to take a quick pause here before we dive into the next part of the show um, when we're going to be talking about the impact of digital payments now and what it could mean in the future. Do you love InsureTech and insurance? Well, so do we. InsureTech Insider is a bi-weekly podcast from 11RFS where hosts myself, Sarah Kachansky and Deloitte's Nigel Walsh dig into the latest news and hot topics from the global insurance scene together with guests from the industry's most interesting players. A new episode goes live every other Wednesday. Simply visit ii.11fs.com or download InsureTech Insider from your favorite podcast player. Okay, let's get back to the discussion. So um, we talked, you know, a little bit of how about how things are done. And we sort of touched on uh, some of the infrastructure pieces. But what are the the benefits of increased digital payments for consumers overall so we talked a bit about merchants for merchants it's great it means they can continue running their businesses it means they can accept a wider range of businesses and particularly at the moment it means they can they can actually bring money in particularly if they can't open their shop front for whatever reason maybe the store's too small to meet with the country's rules you know they, they can keep business coming in but what are the benefits for me so if i if i like cash and i'm very attached to cash because i know it i trust it and it's safe what what do what's in it for me? <laughs> convince me, basically, other than a global pandemic, convince me that I should start using digital payments. Where would you even start with this one? It's so, uh, I mean, I think imagine, this is almost like us ganging up on you now, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the really obvious starting point is, well, if you were in the queue for the pub and you dropped your tenor, um, you're not going to get that back. Um, actually, if you had a card, you know, you're covered as a consumer. You're, if you want to be generous and buy all your friends around, actually, you can spend more than that tenor. Um, from a security perspective, if you want to go online and you want to purchase goods, actually, again, you've got consumer protections. Um, I mean, the one that I always remember is sitting in a taxi, knowing that I had, you know, scraping about in my purse, knowing that I only had, you know, say like 15 quid or something, being stuck in traffic and thinking, right, when am I going to have to get out and walk, right? <laughs> That's, nobody likes being in that situation or being in a shop and not being able to get everything you had hoped to get um, because you just don't have the money in your, your purse. Um, but then I think when you move this whole concept further into the digital world, then you also have the annoyance of passwords, right? Now, this is one of my, um, another bugbear, 
But I think today you need to know something like 90 different passwords. And we already talked about the different apps that you might have to have on, on your phone. But actually, they need to know that many passwords. I mean, it would be a cognitive feat of, of anybody to remember all of that. So you end up with passwords being reused. You end up with retailers losing out. You as a consumer get frustrated and you don't buy what you wanted, which then hurts the, the retailer. So I think digital payments is enabling us to move towards the use of things like biometrics, actually, which enable you to buy what you want quicker. You know, if you have various applications on their phone, you know, you can already have your address in there. You do one click and it turns up. It's just reliable, more convenient and uh, fast. <laughs> I think I think you've done a very comprehensive job there, Jennifer. So let's turn the question round. What about for people who, for whatever reason, can't just get on this bandwagon? So you've convinced me, fine, I'll go and download the app, I'll get myself a contactless card, I'm in, I'm sold. But there will be people out there for whom they actually may accept all those benefits, but but actually can't do that. So um, they don't have a bank account would be a good place to start. Perhaps they don't have um, a payment card. Maybe they don't have a smartphone uh, across Europe. Maybe they don't have broadband. You know, there there are people in those groups. And yes, they tend to be the minorities in, in large parts of the world. But we can't say you don't get to buy anything anymore because you don't have broadband. So um, how do we ensure that those groups aren't left behind? How do we make sure that we bring those people in um, and enable them to to benefit from all those benefits that you just listed there, Jennifer? So, I mean, maybe I can give Jennifer a break. <laughs> she <laughs> did such a good... Um, so, um, I, actually, I actually sit on the board of uh, one of our products in Latin America called Super Digital, and it's all about financial inclusion, where typically it focuses on younger people who wouldn't have access to credit and the traditional banking methods. And really, from our perspective, it's just about... It's not about getting a bank account. It's about getting all the services that you would normally get through a bank account. So I think it's about thinking about more about the customer perspective, what they're trying to do, how they're trying to keep the money safe. Are they trying to get their money, uh, their payroll into their account? And then giving them multiple ways to use that, to manage their funds and to give them all, all the services. So it should be open to everyone. I mean, you know, a bank account, Internet access, you know, these are all basics now in, in, in life. Um, so I think, you know, we should find ways, all of our, our financial institutions should be very committed to improving the lives of all, all of our customers, not just the ones that are wealthy. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I think it's an approach we take here at 11FS, which we call the jobs to be done mentality, which is rather than trying to decide on a product, you find out what you do, we're going to get a bank account, we're going to get every bank account, you find out what they need the bank account for, and then you find a way to enable them to do that. Um, and it sort of, it, it, it means that you come up with, you know, far more innovative, far more useful, far more practical products and solutions for people. Um, I think, sorry, did you want to jump in there, Mary, as well? Yeah, I would love to. Um, and, and here... I want to pick up on Shirak's point on financial inclusion or inclusion in general. I think um, providing, it's not just about payment, it's about inclusion. And, and the only way it happens uh, by digital. Um, and you get the innovation, in, especially in countries where um, large parts of the population are unbanked or underbanked, uh, where the innovation there is staggering. And in fact, figuring out what are the uses of cash and how do we digitize those. And what I've seen is in these countries, whether it's in Africa, LATAM, in Asia, India is a great example again, of governments or government institutions and uh, startups or businesses working together to enable this innovation and to bring people into 
not just digital payments, but really a much broader set of financial instruments and financial um, education than they, they normally would have had had they stayed with cash. So, so how's this? So, how's this this trend and this kind of, I suppose, um, acceptance among merchants and willingness among consumers to to, to use digital payments? Um, how's that affecting how different organisations think about it? So, I'll, I'll start with you, Chirag. I'll pick on you and say, how's it affecting big banks' approach? Um, you know, is it driving things up? And perhaps just another element to consider here is the competition element. So, you know, for you, Jennifer, like, what what does it mean? You know, is, is our Facebook and Apple's uh, well, not my Facebook so, so much, maybe. Apple and Google's movements into the payment space is that making people or com- more traditional companies speed up what they're doing? Um, so it's a twofold question here. But you know what what can large organisations do, and are they being forced to act now by a competition element as well as a kind of a, a, a pragmatic or a practical element? Um, so I I actually before I came to Santander, I was at Amazon. Um, and I ran payments there for Europe. So I think e-com gives us an amazing use case for this whole digitization, because I think you're, you're not just talking about digitization of payments, you're getting people comfortable purchasing in a way that they're not comfortable with or they haven't done so and so far. So things like security, trust, um, and building that over time is super important. Um, and, you know, payments shouldn't be something that you think about. It should, should just naturally flow. So too many kind of options for consumers, too much education that has to go on, that kind of detracts from the overall end-to-end payment experience. And then for banks, I think, I think it's, it's been really about um, an awakening, quite frankly, um, that you know, banks have literally rested on their laurels for a long time about the way that they interact with their customers, the services that they offer. Um, and I think what they've realized now is that they've left huge uh, customer experience gaps that are being exploited by other fintechs. A great example of this is like international payments. The easiest place to make an international payment is from your bank account. Yet so many banks are seeing all of their customers moving to TransferWise and World Remit. And that's kind of why we launched PagoFX, because we want to close that customer experience on international transfers. Um, and that, you know, innovation isn't really just um, kind of limited to fintechs or startups. Innovation happens everywhere. It's just you get a customer problem and you solve it, and you can solve it with an existing solution. It doesn't have to be brand new. So, you know, I think that kind of mindset as well, just coming back to the customer is super important. I think there's an interesting point there to be made as well, perhaps, and perhaps um, somebody else wants to pick up on this as well. But if you're talking about competition and you're talking about how competition is driving you know, larger organizations to make changes, there's also something to be said about cost. So to your point, Chirag, a lot of the times that reason people do not use their bank to make an international bank transfer is because it's four times as expensive as it is to use transfer-wise. So um, perhaps there's, you know, a, a, aside from the kind of the, 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 the solutions that are off, but it's also maybe making larger organizations rethink their pricing structures if they want to keep keep their customers happy and keep their customers with them. Um, Jennifer, did you want to, to jump in on that perhaps or, or, or Mario, whoever wants to go first? I think in terms of the piece about competition, one of the things to flag is some activity that's going on in the UK. So with the Emerging Payments Association, a number of um, paytechs, if you like, have got together under a project they call Project Inclusion and they've launched a foundation which is called actually the Inclusion Foundation. But what they were trying to do was there was a concern that actually exactly as the problem that you set out, there was not enough focus on what's the needs of those who are not banked or are underbanked or 
are being forced to have a basic bank account, you know, they can't get a more sophisticated product for some reason, or they've chosen not to. So actually understand the use cases more, but also how do you help them identify what works best for them? So they did two things. They developed an accreditation mark with the idea is actually we will compete as an industry to win that accreditation mark. You know, you have to provide certain functionalities and prove that that product is of quality for the group you're aiming to serve. But then also they're creating what is um, a comparison tool, basically, where as a consumer, you can go on, you can answer some questions about how you save, how you spend, what actually you want to get out of the tool. So, for example, you might want to be able to get on the phone and speak to, you know, a contact center, speaking another language, like what sort of support do you need to enable you to be financially included and actually it'll come up with some options for you to go and select so actually I think this is a great way of the industry coming together to create a more competitive environment and to understand more how to meet the needs of that um, customer set as well. Mario did you have anything to add on? Yes uh, to pick up the point on consumers and, and really um, thinking with consumer lens in mind and, and the shoppers lens in mind in, in our case when it comes to e-commerce uh, I agree with you right that it's, it's a fantastic use case to go on um, what we see is in many markets the the digital habits of payment are developing a different in a different way uh, it's not always a card it's not always a bank transfer uh, there are various payment methods that are locally re- relevant or locally used uh, and I think for um, merchants and payment players, authentic players, it's important to embrace that, that local uh, l- that local nuance and uh, the set of local options that should be available to a uh, global player or a multinational uh, e-commerce merchant or player. And enabling those local payment methods, I think, will further help drive adoption. I think too many times we see um, locally relevant content, language, currency, or even payment options uh, being completely forgotten by the international players. And I think that's driving a lot of the um, kind of the, the, the apprehension of, of, of going online or paying online. Um, just a, a recent study through the, through the COVID crisis, um, uh, we saw that close to 30% uh, in Latin, in Latin America, uh, close to 30% of shoppers online are new for the first time um, shopping online. That's a huge, huge number uh, of first-time uh, adopters who are not early adopters, right? Uh, coming into uh, not just online shopping, but paying digitally, most likely. And I think that trend shows that, if we get back to the, the COVID trends, right? Uh, that's a huge acceleration that would have taken years uh years if not decades to to come to to come to place i think that point about cultural differences is so important i think a lot of times uh companies forget that and uh, so cultural differences local differences even regional differences we see even here in europe companies that have done very well in germany trying to come to the uk without changing their strategy and it just doesn't work um you know even if people companies based in the UK who think they can just go straight to the US and that just doesn't work because there are different preferences and habits and, and that extends from everything from payments and beyond. Um, but we've talked about how, how COVID-19 has clearly accelerated the move away from cash for a number of different reasons. Do you think that anybody's going to go back to cash? So in a lot of parts of the world now, things are starting to reopen. 
people are starting to be able to go out and about a bit more and visit pubs, cafes, restaurants, hairdressers, bars, small shops. Do you think people, consumers, I mean, will want to go back to cash or do you think that we've had enough time for the habits to stick? So we've been um, taking a temperature check with consumers on this. So our research says that seven in 10 are expecting there to be a permanent shift away from from cash. And if you think about that, that's the consumer giving that view, which gives an idea of their own intent and also what they're hearing from their friends and family, which I think is one of the best measures of what we're likely to see in in society. I'll provide a proxy for that uh, for some of our markets, uh, which is online shopping versus uh, versus in, in store. And what we see is the online portion. Um, we, we saw through the through the pandemic and through the lockdowns, uh, tripling, quadrupling of volumes. And as some open some markets are starting to open up, like in Poland, like in Russia, uh, we've seen some decline, um, but but still 70 percent above the levels where we were before. And so I think a lot of this will stick. A lot of the behaviors will stick. Um, both in terms of shopping habits as well as spending habits. Yeah, I mean, if you consider how hard you had to work to get your Ocado delivery, you know, there's no way I'm going back now. So I think I think you're totally right, Mario. I think it's just about the behaviors change more than there's a you know a conscious effort that I don't want to use cash anymore. It's like that, there's no need to go into a supermarket if you're lucky enough to get uh, the Ocado. Um, and you know, other other ways and forms, I think, are just kind of e-commerce is coming to the top i mean we've seen a massive shift as well over there i think people are far more used to using e-com now um and i think that that is here to stay which is totally fair and and absolutely fine but does that mean we actually have to protect cash for the minority that still can't use those electronic solutions for whatever reason so here in the uk is a good example the fca uh, published draft guidelines i'm gonna say in the last couple of weeks i can't remember the date exactly but basically saying banks have got to think about this they can't just go with the tide they've got to protect access to cash and it's actually a right for the time being, for people to have access to cash. So, you know, uh, the banks are going to have to think about what their plans are, communicate those plans clearly. And, you know, we've had a couple of examples. I've given this example before, but um, where where my mum lives, it's it's not a very big place. Uh, It's over in Wales. um, And they had an agreement. There was a, a... one bank left in town and there was a post office, both of which did, you know, access to cash. Um, and then the bank said they were putting their branch out and the post office had to close because they couldn't find um, anybody to take over the post office. But they didn't tell each other that. So they suddenly ended up with no access to cash in the entire town because those plans hadn't been communicated. And that meant that there was this large population of elderly people in this town. And that meant that all of a sudden it just went like that. And it can happen that quickly. And I think what I'm trying to get at here is that maybe we do need to put some some uh, rails in place to stop that happening because we we, we, we talk about the, the acceleration towards digital payments and generally that's true and generally it's here to stay but we can lose access to cash so quickly that perhaps we'll leave people behind so do you think there's an argument to be made for either regulators or maybe joint working groups or something like that to, to, to put plans in place to protect cash until we can ensure we're leaving nobody I don't personally feel there needs to be rules around it. I think every company or service provider needs to service all of their customers. And the fact is there's a large majority that still use cash. And quite frankly, 
you know, not that I was alive. <laughs> well, maybe I was alive, but not thinking about payments, but card payments, when they come along, everyone said that's going to get rid of cash, but it's still here and it's still very prevalently used. So I don't think cash is disappearing. I think we're just providing different behaviors, different ways to use digital payments. Um, and it makes sense to, to people. And I think that education is super important. So I agree, branches, they should be there. ATM should should continue. But I think it's up to us as financial institutions now to educate people on the use of digital payments, why it's important, what's useful to them. Um, but we have to maintain the cash network as well. I, I would side with Shirag in, in the sense that I don't think cash needs protecting. Um, I would bet on innovation and uh, uh, both startups uh, as well as regulators, as well as big banks uh, and big business being on the innovation front of how do we, in fact, even move further away from cash? Uh, because there's so many benefits and, and Jennifer uh, went through many, many of them, right? So many benefits of moving away from cash. I think we need to accelerate the trend. Uh, I don't think it needs protecting. And the point you made, Shirag, I think is spot on. Uh, a retailer or a merchant will need to serve all their customers. It's in their best interest. Which is why, again, I talked uh, about um, serving with as many local or global payment methods as you can. This is what we do at PayU. This is what uh, many companies do. And I think uh, this is here to stay, right? Uh, a lot of merchants will continue and, and retailers will continue to cater to every um, every required payment method for them to convert that sale. Yes, I think perhaps it becomes then about choice. So if you say we don't take cash but you don't need a contactless card because you can use X, Y, you can, you can use an SMS or you can ring us up on the telephone. You know, you can do a payment with, you know, literally by talking to somebody on the phone if need be. Um, then I guess maybe it is about that, that giving people a choice of what they want to do, which means not only what they're able to do, but also that they don't feel like they're pushed into something they don't want to do. Because I think if you push people into making a payment, uh, in a way that they're not comfortable with, they won't do it. Um, Jennifer, did you want? Did you have any any final points about access to cash and perhaps whether it needs protecting or whether you think you know it'll it'll work itself out? So I think our CEO always says you cannot have an internet of everything until you have the inclusion of everyone. So it's something as an organisation we're really focused on. But I think access to cash is something we need to understand more about. So, for example, we are giving retailers, I think it's 12 pence on every cashback transaction they do on debit, both to understand if retailers want to offer it, but also if consumers are requiring it. So it's enabling more access. But again, it will enable us to test that demand because I think there's some very interesting statistics out there about access and choice. So, for example, in London, you often have the least distance to travel to get access to an ATM. But actually, London has seen the fastest decline in cash of anywhere. So access to cash and the decline in cash are not necessarily as intrinsically linked, I think, as assumed. There are, are a lot of positive trends towards digitization going on, and that's driven by choice. Um, so we do need to continue to provide access, but we also need to continue to focus on innovation to make sure we can include everyone. 
Perfect. Well, yes, I mean, I think I think everybody agrees that we can't leave anybody behind because then if you want to put your most mercenary hat on, those people can't spend any money. And that's bad for the economy. That's bad for businesses. Um, and that's bad for consumers. Um, so there's my point being there's a, a business imperative to make sure that everybody can make payments. Um, so just before we wrap up, I'm going to I'm just going to let you guys give me perhaps gaze into your crystal balls if you have one or perhaps you prefer to scry, whatever your preferred uh, method of, of fortune telling is or future reading the future is um where is the next big move in digital payments so we've seen an accelerated trend but what do you think is next either geographically or perhaps technologically like is there something else coming um maybe it's crypto uh maybe it's not crypto maybe it's something i don't even know about um but where is the next big move the kind of the the next thing that's really going to make waves so um I think there's still so much to be done within payments. Uh, I think it, it's very easy to get distracted with, you know, what's something on the horizon a little bit further out. If I had to pick something, it's probably the, the central bank uh, digital currencies and what gives the options that gives uh, people when you're moving money around the world. But even with that, I think what's important to ensure that that is built in the right way is to understand exactly what the pain point that they're trying to solve is. Because I think when you when you just start with the technology and you try and fit it to a use case, it doesn't really work for me. I think if you start with a use case and then try and find a way to solve it, then I think that's the, the much better solution. But um, I think, honestly, my, my roadmap for the next three to five years is it's all around the same sort of things, but there's just so many countries out there that don't have that minimum infrastructure. So we don't have to look that far into the future. Um, so things like P2P is super important through Latin America. Um, enabling merchants to actually transact and, and take payments, uh, enabling e-commerce around the world. I mean, it's, it's very prevalent in the US and, uh, and Europe, but not so much through Latin America and Asia. So there's huge, huge opportunities in payments um, without having to look too far ahead for brand new technology. Anybody else? So I'll, I'll go next. Um, I, would, I would agree with that completely. Um, I think... Um, there is so much more to be done in payments and digitizing commerce in general, um, and especially in the high-growth developing markets where over 80-85% of the world's population is that struggles with banking or under large swaths of populations are still underbanked. There's so much more to be done in digitizing payments, in innovation around payment methods, um, also in driving both local and cross-border commerce uh, and e-commerce, um, where it's good for the local economy, it's good for the global economy, it brings people closer. All of that, I think, is here to stay. It's been accelerated in a, in a, in a way uh, through this pandemic, um, and I think we'll, we'll stay, and I hope to see even further innovation. We see that certainly in a number of our markets uh, across the PayU landscape. Um, and I think we've continued to see further innovation in both on the merchant side, uh, as merchants expand their networks and expand um, their um, their reach. And the set of payment options, as we said earlier, uh, local payment options that are absolutely necessary for that conversion factor online. But also I think governments will uh, will continue to drive a lot of that, uh, I hope they drive a lot of that uh, opening up and we get away from some of that uh, 
populist and protectionist rhetoric that is coming around at the moment. And Jennifer, how about you? Do you have anything that we haven't covered here that you think is the next big thing? See, Mario said the magic word for me. He said government. So I think uh, it definitely we hope to see you know, great acceleration in that area. If I think like in four weeks, we've launched over 100 initiatives. That's a huge undertaking. And I think we're going to see more in that direction. The one, I guess, type of technology that we haven't focused on today that I think is going to make interesting inroads is what we take for granted for in the UK. So bank to bank, we are so used to it and it is so ingrained in our society. We forget that actually there's a huge opportunity elsewhere. And probably the most leading initiative that's going to be coming forward is coming from the Nordics. Um, so it's an initiative called P27. So that's bringing together the four Nordic countries. And the idea is you'll be able to do bank-to-bank payments, so ACH, um, in all four currencies plus euro. So it's a huge collaborative effort. And I think something that may, you know, set out a lot of digital leadership that other countries and other regions may wish to follow that level of, of collaboration. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the idea of account to account payments and making them more, um, making them cheaper, making them easier and facilitating them. I've been jealous of the Netherlands for a long time now. Um, but that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? So websites, Twitter handles, LinkedIn's perhaps. Jennifer, do you want to go first? Um, the Mastercard one is easy, so Mastercard UK Biz, um, and you can find me on LinkedIn. So it's just my name, Jennifer Duncan. Brilliant, Mario. How about you? Uh, for me, same. Um, find me on LinkedIn, Mario Shlieski, and of course, come to payyou.com to find out uh, all 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 of the services as well as products that we offer across the world. Brilliant. And last, my name is Least Sherak. Yeah, Chirag Patel on LinkedIn, and then uh, also download uh, PagoFX. It's a great way to see the new experiences Santander is building. And it'll be a belated birthday present for you. (laughs) All right. Um, And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and it helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech and who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, please do pass the podcast along and tell them all about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.